innovative, often duplicated. When enough people get on the trend, I elevate it. Make it way harder for them to follow what I take. It hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged in your trachea. Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up. So just take your stuff, rake it up, and take the bus. Never fake the funk, you painted skunks. You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space, so the weight is up. Fight. Welcome to another episode of Dirty White Belt Radio. People get into jiu-jitsu these days for a wide array of reasons, but one of the reasons that is most common is self-defense. My guest today, Jake Whitfield, has made a career out of training people in what he believes to be the most effective self-defense techniques out there. And these days, I'm training a lot of self-defense myself for a number of different reasons, and so I thought it would be fun to have Jake back in the studio to go really in-depth about what self-defense means, spoiler alert, he takes a much broader perspective on it than most people, how to effectively train it using the aliveness that we use in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu to make sure that our techniques are effective, and what other things he thinks are most important for people to know as they begin their journey in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. But before we get into our featured interview, I got to tell you how to get a hold of the show. You can always email us at cagesidewhup at gmail.com, get at us on Twitter and Instagram at Dirty White Belt and DWB Radio, respectively, or on our Facebook page at Cageside Radio, facebook.com slash Cageside Radio. We're also posting a ton of new content to the blog at dirtywhitebelt.com, and so I want to encourage you to check that out. A specific reason that I want to encourage you to check that out is we're having two really fun contests and one upcoming thing that I'd like to get on your radar screen. One of the goals for the show has always been to support the local scene in North Carolina and beyond to grow jiu-jitsu in the American Southeast and as far as we can grow it. One of the ways that we've done that is to sponsor local athletes. Now, we're going to be rethinking the way we sponsor athletes in 2018, but for now, we just want to make sure that we're getting enough money back into the community as possible and get people out there competing. So we're having a contest where we're going to sponsor two people for a tournament at U.S. Grappling. It's easy to enter. You can figure out how to enter for sponsorship at dirtywhitebelt.com slash blog. But basically, we want you to write us a paragraph that explains why we should sponsor you. We want you to send us a picture of you competing either in a U.S. grappling tournament or in a Toro Gi or ideally both. And you can email all of that stuff to cagesidewhup at gmail.com. You can also email any questions to that address. After we figure out who the two people we're going to sponsor for the rest of the year are, we're also going to give some year-end awards. For the first time, we're going to hand out the Dirty White Belt Radio Awards, the Dirties, and those are going to come at the end of the year. We're going to give awards for Competitor of the Year, Coach of the Year. We're going to give awards for the Best Match of the Year, Best Submission of the Year, and a bunch of other fun things. We'll announce more details on all of that as we go along, but for now, start thinking about people that you think are good candidates. We're going to have a public nomination process for things like Coach of the Year and Competitor of the Year, as well as Match of the Year, and eventually a panel of judges is going to decide on the awards, which we'll give at the end of 2017 and beginning of 2018. One other item of note that I want to announce, Bernardo Faria, the five-time world champion, is coming to the Triangle. That's right, he's coming to Elevate MMA on Sunday, November 19th from 1 to 4 p.m. We're helping to put that on in conjunction with Betty Broadhurst's Roll Forever and Elevate MMA Academy. The seminar is going to be three hours from 1 to 4 p.m. You can get it for $80 pre-register and $100 the day of. If you've never trained with Bernardo, a friend of the show and my former roommate Alex Cummings trains under him now and says not only is he one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, but his technique is top-notch. So if you like efficient jiu-jitsu, if you like learning from world champions, keep that on your radar screen and put it on your calendar now, Sunday, November 19th, 2017, 1 to 4 p.m. at Elevate MMA, Bernardo Faria. 
Now that the news is out of the way, Jay Whitfield is known to most of you. He's a well-regarded black belt under Hoist Gracie here in North Carolina, has a school, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu Goldsboro, where he teaches self-defense, traditional Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, and other techniques effective for both sport Jiu-Jitsu and MMA fighting, of which Jake was a very successful competitor. But Jake's passion is self-defense, and I think you'll hear that in the interview. That was one of the reasons I wanted to sit down, talk with him, and really go into detail about what it means to defend oneself. Without further ado, here's Jake Whitfield. U.S. Grappling has another tournament coming up. Now, you know how well-run the U.S. Grappling tournaments are, and you know how good a time everybody has there. But what you might not know is that you can either register early online at usgrappling.com, or you can enter our contest to get one of our two sponsorships to upcoming U.S. Grappling tournaments. Details about that are on dirtywhitebelt.com slash blog. You can also register online at their website, usgrappling.com. Go check out the best-run tournaments around and tell them we sent you. So Jake Whitfield doesn't like to brag about himself, but one of the things that you learn when you talk to all the black belts in Hoist Gracie Jiu-Jitsu and other Jiu-Jitsu instructors throughout North Carolina and the American Southeast is that Jake is considered one of the best self-defense instructors in the area. He has a deep knowledge of and a passion for self-defense, especially the Elio Gracie self-defense Jiu-Jitsu, and that's why I wanted to have Jake back on the show to talk about his interest in self-defense, his uh, passion for it, what he thinks about the teaching, training, and application of it. So welcome back to the studio, Jake. Thanks for having me. So what is self-defense? So I think that self-defense primarily is anything that helps keep you safe. Um, Sometimes that's going to be an external attack from another person. Sometimes it's going to be gravity. So like to me, I think that some of the most important self-defense techniques are the falling techniques. That's why at my school we practice every single class, back falls, side falls, rolls, every single class because you are infinitely more likely to fall down and hurt yourself than you are to have somebody actually attack you. So to me, that's that's self-defense. Um, self-defense is avoiding being in any type of confrontation that could lead to you getting hurt. Um, self-defense is much, much more than just the, the techniques of, okay, I'm standing there. I've allowed somebody to get in my personal space. They grab me. What do I do when they grab me? It has to be everything else leading up to that as well. I'm glad to hear you say that because um, I've, everybody has a different definition, right? And I personally love the broader definition that you have of, of whatever keeps you safe because statistically a lot more of us are going to die from heart disease or from right. accidents than, than from getting into physical confrontation, which doesn't make the self-defense techniques that address dealing with a, an imminent threat any less important. But it is interesting. And to follow up on that, what, what do you think? Do you think the breakfall techniques are the most important self-defense techniques? Or can you break them down into what you think the most important techniques are for the average person? Importance a, a weird, weird word to use in this situation. Um, I think that they're very practical. I think that the falling techniques are something that need to be mastered before you can even really uh, practice other things. Um, I think that to safely practice any type of move, you also need to be able to have the move be done to you safely. So before you can um, learn any type of a throw or any type of a takedown, you need to know how to fall 
without hurting yourself because you need to feel the move on the receiving end so that you, that gives you feedback on how to apply it on the other side. Um, so I think that the I think the the break falls are absolutely essential. I think that it's something that um, even if you don't practice takedowns, learning very early on how to tuck your chin, how to not hit your head on the floor. Like my kids in my kids' classes, I always tell them, your head is not a basketball. Your head is not designed to bounce on a floor. So that's something that's very, very important. And that's something that, you know, even if you have somebody who's brand new who comes in, not an athlete, an average person, maybe somebody's a little bit out of shape, you might be practicing something like a, a hip bump sweep. And if you get the right person who does a hip bump sweep on you, you actually can hit the mat with a little bit of you know force. And so if the somebody who's never learned how to fall properly, somebody who's not athletic, they might they might hit their head, they might hurt their head, hurt their neck, just on something as simple as a hip bump sweep. Um, same thing. It's very common for me if I teach uh, somebody who's brand new, or if I teach like a women's self defense class or something, we do the basic upa escape, the basic bridge and roll escape from the mount, and I watch people. They hit the mat when they're getting rolled over like they're like they just got thrown. They hit the mat very hard because they haven't learned how to let their body relax as they're getting rolled over so they don't hurt themselves. So I think that the the falling techniques and the rolling techniques need to be practiced regularly. I don't think that anyone should really be rolling um, until they are physically capable of doing a literal forward roll. If you're not capable of turning your head to the side, rolling over your shoulder, and you know making that body movement, um, then you probably don't have enough um, mobility in your body to do anything else. We've talked to you about Cageside Fight Company on the program before, and Cageside.com is still the best place to get all of your fight gear needs. No matter what martial art you practice, you'll find something at a great price with tremendous customer service on Cageside.com. A couple of things available on the site right now. There's more than 50% of the Cageside best part of waking up rash guard. For those of us that do early morning jiu-jitsu, we know these are high-quality rash guards that speak to our particular interests. There's also some terrific Muay Thai shin guards, the Cageside tank shin guards, which are super high-quality and because we just did let kicks at class this week are on my mind so if you need some striking gear check that out whether you grapple whether you strike whether you do both you won't be sorry that you went to cageside.com What do you think the most common misconceptions people have about self-defense are? There's so many, I think, and everybody hears something different when they hear self-defense. As an instructor that that is very focused on that, what do you think the most common misconceptions, wrong ideas people have about self-defense are? So I think there's two categories to this. I think there's uh, there's certain misconceptions that exist in the general public, and then the jiu-jitsu community has a separate uh, group of misconceptions. I think the idea that, um, and I teach women self-defense classes, and I think that they're a very good way to introduce people to self-defense. But the idea that anyone can take a two-hour class at the YMCA and then be able to effectively use any technique they learn in a stressful situation with a violent attacker is ridiculous. 
And so like there's a video on YouTube. I don't remember exactly what it's called, but it's um, there's a video on YouTube has like 10 million views on it, which is uh, essentially a Krav Maga group went to a park and um, and planted some attractive females in the park that they then gave a two minute demonstration on how to protect themselves. And then they had one of the instructors put on like a headgear and they're like, okay, so let's see if you know how to protect yourself from an attack. And the, the women, you know, did the techniques they were shown and the attacker was completely compliant. And they're like, wow, you see, you see how easy this is. You see how great this is. You just learned how to protect yourself from, from this big, strong guy in, in only two minutes. And, and if you come to our school, then we can teach you how to do that. It's great marketing, but it's it's wrong. It's not that's not the way it works. Um, same way with fitness. There's no magic pill. You have to burn more calories than you take in if you want to lose weight. You have to pick up heavy things if you want to be stronger. You have to breathe hard so that you don't breathe hard as much. That's the way it is. And so, if you're not regularly experiencing um, resistance and physical um, altercations, even if they're controlled physical altercations and you're not dealing with those on a regular basis, you're not going to be able to defend yourself. But that's outside the jiu-jitsu community. The jiu-jitsu community almost has a opposite problem, which is most schools um, don't start standing up or they do it on a very limited basis. Uh, most schools don't include any type of striking in their jiu-jitsu program. They might have a Muay Thai program or something that's separate, but it's not integrated in the jiu-jitsu class. Um, and so what happens is you have a guy come in off the street, doesn't know anything. He came in, he came in to learn jiu-jitsu. And then when it's time to roll, you put a gi on him, you tell him, okay, now you have to start on your knees. You're not allowed to stand up. You're not allowed to punch, no kicking, no striking, anything like that, no biting, no eye gouging. And then if, you know, if you get picked up, you're not allowed to pick anybody up, no slamming. And so you put all these artificial things around the situation. And then the jujitsu person makes the guy tap. And you make him tap very easily. He doesn't know anything. And then you feel that that training, oh, man, this white belt came in, this new guy came in, he doesn't know anything. And I just tapped him like it was nothing. Like, I can defend myself. Well, but you did that in a completely artificial environment after removing all the natural tools that someone would use to try to hurt you. And you did it with somebody that came in for the explicit reason that he's interested in learning this thing you're trying to teach him. It's not the same as a potentially experienced violent criminal that is not at all interested in your safety in any way. In fact, it's the opposite. He wants to do as much damage to you as quickly as he can. And a lot of people in the jiu-jitsu community um, complain about, well, I don't want to roll with the spazzy white belt. The spazzy white belt is the guy that you most need to roll with because that's the one that you're most likely to face. But even when you're facing him, you have to keep in mind that he's being spazzy, he's going crazy, but it's only within the rule set that he's allowed to operate in. So I think that a lot of people in the jiu-jitsu community have an uh, – overinflated idea of how capable they actually are of defending themselves based on, well, I tap white belts so I can defend myself. 
you know, knowing you and having trained with you for many years, I know that you're not hostile to competition. You believe in the value of sure. competition and that sport jujitsu is something that's valuable and has its place. But like, it sounds like the artificial constraints that are sometimes driven by sport rule sets, it seems like that can distract us from the fundamentals of self-defense. Yeah, uh, I think that competition's great. I, I'm completely in favor of anyone that that wants to compete competing. Um, and I'm not I'm not opposed to practicing competition specific techniques. But I think that initially a student needs to be introduced to the fundamentals of self-defense of a more um, a, a game that's more suited to defending yourself against somebody who's trying to hurt you. And then after the person is really comfortable with that and after they're really um, confident in their, their abilities, then you can add on other things. Um, so, for instance, in my private classes, the first techniques that I teach in the guard are how to defend strikes and how to defend against somebody who's trying to choke you. If you get somebody on top of you that's trying to hurt you, they're going to try to hit you. They're going to try to choke you. If you cling tightly to them, they'll try to slam you. But so even though like the hip bump sweep is one of maybe the most simple sweeps in jiu-jitsu, the hip bump sweep is not likely to be used in a street fight because the hip bump sweep is for when the top person postures up when they're sitting away from you. Somebody who's trying to hurt you is never going to sit away from you. They're going to be tight. They're going to be attacking you. They're going to be coming down on top of you. And so even though the hip bump sweep is a very basic move, and it's a very important move to learn, it's, to me, not the first move you should learn if you're trying to learn self-defense. Yeah, if you went up in a street fight with someone who postures up, gets grips, and tries to open your guard, you might just initiate a conversation about where that person trains right. and hope to make peace in that way. Right, like, hey, Ex exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an artificial situation. It's a trained response. It's not something that an uh, uneducated person is going to do. So one of the things that I notice and that you've mentioned to me is some of your top students, you know, uh, Travis Wheeler, Stephen Thigpen, Matt Jones, like these guys, when you guys spar at your school, when you roll under the traditional sort of jujitsu agreed upon rolling rule set, you could say at any moment, okay, guys, strikes are involved and it wouldn't necessarily change the approach to rolling that happens at your school. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, at my school, you don't see a lot of reverse de la Hiva. Not that there's anything wrong with reverse de la Hiva. Reverse de la Hiva is very useful for what it's intended to do. But um, those skills are learned much, much later. And so the basis is on the, the fundamentals. And, um, and so, yeah, that's, and that's something that we do sometimes is like sometimes – we roll with strikes. Sometimes we start off not rolling with strikes and then mid roll, I might say, all right, now we're going to start adding some touches in. Um, and so that's just a, a normal part of, of our training. Now, if we're training specifically for a competition, are we going to do that? No, of course not. We're going to train for that thing that we're preparing for. Um, but, it's something that we do regularly. Mm -hmm. So speaking of reverse de la Hiva, not to pick on one common sport-related position, we were talking before the show about how you know, one of the ways that you get good at anything is you, you drill. You know, you build that sort of 
mental pathway that's like, okay, in order to have a successful Rosh de la Hiva guard, I understand the concept. I drilled the concept into me. Okay, I control distance this way. Here's what I can do. And then you practice that in, in specific rolling situations. And so I'm curious, like, I would like to hear you explain how you think that sort of learning process relates to self-defense as well. Right. So um, another thing that I hear within the jiu-jitsu community, this is not a, a thought process that, that a, a layman has, is, um, well, I don't practice headlock escapes because I understand the concept of how to escape a headlock. Well, if you understand the concept of how to pass reverse de la Hiva. That's great. But if you want to be effective at passing reverse de la Hiva, you have to first, you have to learn the concept. Then you have to practice step-by-step the techniques in a very controlled way, very slow way. Then you gradually pick up the speed of what you're doing and the intensity of what you're doing. And then you start adding resistance and you start saying, well, hold on, don't let me break your grip keep that grip on my ankle and let me see if I can really get it out of there. And you build up, build up, build up. For some reason, people think that for reverse de la Hiva, you need to drill individual steps and become proficient at them. But on a headlock, it's okay to understand the concept. It's the same process. When you're dealing with a, a headlock, you need to understand how the headlock works what's good for you, what's bad for you, and then you need to practice the textbook perfect way to counter. And then as you start to add resistance, you'll start seeing where the textbook perfect way fails. And then you make adjustments for, okay, how do I prevent that failure? And if it does fail, how do I adjust to what's the likely way that it's going to fail and how do I adjust to that? Um, and I've seen many times where somebody who rolls very well in a sporting context gets caught in a headlock and really, really struggles to get out of it. Mm. In fact, like when I teach uh, headlock escapes at my school, one of the drills we'll do is we'll start standing up and I say, okay, bad guy, grab their head do not let go good guy your job is to make them let go of their hand uh, let go of the head and so then as soon as the hands come unlocked the good guy wins stop start again and it's not uncommon if i happen to have a visitor in my school while that's happening to see somebody who's a, a blue belt or a purple belt that it might take two or three minutes to get them, just get the hands unlocked. And a lot of people are very surprised by how difficult a headlock is when someone is squeezing your head for everything that's worth. It's it's very difficult to get out of. Yeah, you mentioned one of the reasons this is, and which is training with, we don't train the self-defense techniques with aliveness in the same way that we do our regular techniques. And I want to get into that in, in a second about that concept of aliveness and how it relates to drilling, training self-defense. But another thing I notice is that you, you know, I, I'm guilty of this as anybody. You tend to, you know, we're all better at the stuff that's top of mind, the stuff that we do every day, which is why you train the fundamentals every day. You train the breakfalls, you train the shrimping, bridging, all the, the, the basic movements. And so if you haven't trained your reverse De La Hiva pass and you get caught in reverse De La Hiva, even if you know it, 
if you haven't drilled it or you haven't done that in a while, oh wow, it's going to take you a while and you might be in trouble. It's exactly the same for a headlock, right? If it's like, oh, you know, you get stuck in a headlock on the ground. Oh, wait, I know this. And you have to think about it for a second. It's not automatic. Mm-hmm. And part of what I think those of us that really love jujitsu and congregate with other people that really love jujitsu is the average person that is trained in jujitsu is not going to grab for a headlock unless right. his instructor says, all right, bad guy. Right. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true because headlocks um, are not energy efficient techniques and they don't immediately lead to any type of what we would consider a legitimate submission. Except for the fact, if you look at the very first UFC heavyweight title fight ever, was at UFC 12 with Mark Coleman and Dan Severn. Mark Coleman and Dan Severn, two world-class wrestlers who had both won multiple UFC tournaments, were unquestionably at the top of MMA at the time. The first ever UFC heavyweight title fight was won by a headlock. Mark Coleman made Dan Severn tap to a headlock the same type of headlock that Josh Barnett tapped Dean Lister with a couple years ago. The fact that you're a world-class wrestler or an Abu Dhabi champion does not make you impervious to a big, strong guy laying on your chest, lifting your head up off the floor, and suffocating you. So you you don't see a lot of jiu-jitsu people using headlocks, but it is one of the most common things that you're going to see an untrained person do. Mm-hmm. And I think often we can lull ourselves into false senses of security because, like, we're taught that, you know, what is jiu-jitsu? Jiu-jitsu is all about e- efficiency of movement. It's all about the smaller person being able to beat the bigger person. And so from that perspective, you don't necessarily want to train your folks. All right, grab their head and squeeze as hard as you can for as long as you can. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's not dangerous to get yourself in that position with somebody who outweighs you. Like if I have someone in my, in my guard who outweighs me by a hundred pounds, there are a lot of techniques at my disposal that are effective techniques. Somebody a hundred pounds heavier than me grabs my head and squeezes it. I mean, I know my headlock escapes, but that's not going to be a fun experience. Right. It's a very difficult situation. So let's talk about aliveness in self-defense training. I know that you incorporate a lot of, a lot of that, the, the concept of implementing the moves against a fully resisting opponent. And I'm curious about like why you think that's important and what, drills or strategies or teaching mechanisms you use to incorporate that in your in your curriculum so my opinion i think that within the uh alio gracie self-defense program the kind of the traditional self-defense program there are three categories of moves the first category of moves is moves that will work exactly 100 percent the same in a rolling situation or a self-defense situation. An example of that would be the guillotine defense. Guillotine defense where you hold the wrist, arm over the shoulder, walk around to the side, take the guy down, get in the side control, and then after you establish position, you get your head out. It works absolutely 100% the same for self-defense, sport, MMA. The same move works across the board. The second category are moves that only work by surprise. So um, the first technique that Grandmaster Alia would teach in his self-defense program was a two-hand choke defense. Um, two-hand choke defense where you circle your head underneath the arm. One of the most common criticisms that I see about this technique is, well, if you, if you circle your head under the arm, the guy could knee you in the face. It's absolutely true. But it doesn't take into account the mental state of somebody who grabs you with two hands around your neck, standing up. 
That person is not Vanderlei Silva. They're not thinking about kneeing you. Their entire world, every single thing that they see, they have tunnel vision, is their hands squeezing your neck. And then you make an unexpected move where your head circles under the arm, going against the thumbs, and then you create distance and get away. Or at least give yourself a fighting chance. And if it is Vanderlei Silva that has grabbed you by the throat, reconsider your life choices. Right, exactly. I mean, yeah, it's not it's not a common situation once again. Um, and so it's a move that if the good guy knows the move, knows what's coming, the move will fail. And then there's a handful of moves that are too dangerous to be practiced while you're rolling. For instance, at the very first Toro Cup, Joey Carroll did a textbook uh, front headlock defense from the self-defense program. I don't know if Joey knows the self-defense program or not or if this was an intentional thing. But there's a move um, you learn very early on in the program where somebody wraps your head almost like a guillotine and you sit backwards. And the intention of the move is to slam the attacker's head on the ground. Well, Bagels had Joey in a guillotine. And I think Joey was stuck. And like I said, I don't know if he knows the program or not. But I know that what he did was perfect. He, he sat back and Bagels' head did slam right on the floor. And he had a great big goose egg. I think he probably had a concussion. And Joey got out of that situation and ended up winning the match. But that's not a move that can be practiced readily with resistance because it's too dangerous. Another one would be the, uh, in judo, it's called wakigatame, the armpit arm lock, where you hold the wrist and then slam your armpit into the guy's elbow. It's illegal to execute that move standing up in judo because the injuries are too severe. It's not a submission that's designed to be used as a submission. It's not a designed not designed to allow the person to tap. It is designed to break the person's arm. Shinyaoki broke a guy's arm with this. Yes, he did. He broke it, yeah, in uh, in Shuto. Um, you know, and, and most people have seen the Aoki arm break, and it's pretty nasty. Mm. Um, but that's not a move that you can practice with resistance because if you do it hard enough for it to work, then it's too hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so the aliveness has to come uh, in a controlled way. Something like the very first guillotine defense that I mentioned. You can practice that when you're just rolling every day. Um, The other two categories of moves need to be practiced in a um, more controlled environment, which means that they don't have as much aliveness as some of the others. But to think that a move like the wakigatame, the armpit arm lock, to think that a move that's featured in almost every grappling style in the entire world for centuries it was used in pancreation the japanese had it you know it's even even in in professional wrestling which had its roots in in real wrestling um to think that this arm lock that's been done for thousands of years is an ineffective move would be ridiculous it's just a move that you have to be very careful how you practice it um so one of the drills that we do at my school is uh, we call it the circle of death just because that's a fun name where one person is the defender the attackers form more or less a loose circle and they spontaneously execute any type of attack they want 
It could be a double leg. It could be a punch. It could be a headlock, slam him up against the wall, whatever it is. Um, and the person has to react. But I do this as an advanced training for people that know the self-defense program so that they know, okay, if I grab the guy this way, he's going to execute this move that could be potentially dangerous to me. Um, and so those moves, uh, the, the very dangerous moves or the surprise attack, the, the real surprise moves, you have to um, you have to get a little bit more creative on how to practice those with aliveness. This is something I've always wondered about in terms of the, the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu weapons defenses because one of the, the great things about Gracie Jiu-Jitsu generally is it's, a substan- it's an incredibly alive art. Where, like, I know that the guillotine defense works because I've had big, strong people try to guillotine me, and I've implemented that guillotine defense, and these people are trying to choke me, like, as hard as they possibly can, but the escape works. But when you're talking about something, you know, we talk about how dangerous something like Owaki Gatami is, or this move that did, in fact, cause bagels to get a concussion and forget much of the match, which is frightening and you certainly don't want to implement that stuff in your everyday training so how do you think that works with weapons because certainly we can't train live with with like you know it would be uh, it would be dangerous to train with real knives for example you might get sent to the hospital so the uh it's the same process though is that first you begin practicing in controlled step-by-step manner perfect world then you gradually add intensity. Um, and there's all types of training knives. I have a padded knife at my school that, uh, that we use to practice knife defense. So if we're, um, if we're doing advanced self-defense training and we're doing the knife defenses and we're practicing step one, step two, step three, perfect world situation, then we begin to speed up. We begin to vary the attacks where it's not the same attack that you already know is coming. And then you start to see people fumble their hands a little bit more and they start to have a little bit harder time. But then we also include um, sparring where, for instance, um, you, you're the bad guy and you start with the knife. The round does not end until either I make you tap or I take the knife away. That's the only way it ends. When we do those drills, everyone dies. Everyone gets cut. The difference in the experience level is how many times you get stabbed and where. If anybody ever claims that I'm a knife expert and you can attack me with a knife and I'm not going to get stabbed, that person is lying. There's no such thing. Um, It's like a boxer who says, I'm never going to get punched. It's ridiculous. Even Floyd Mayweather gets punched. It's very rare. It's not usually a clean shot. It almost never hurts him, but it happens. Um, And so the same thing happens with the knife where you have these techniques that are the ideal perfect world situation that you would like to make happen. But as you add resistance, they start to fail and you have to then learn how to adapt to those failures. Um, and then they make different things. You know, they make uh, they make a shock knife, mm. which is like a taser knife, where every time that you get stabbed or you get cut, it feels like you actually got stabbed or cut. It's electrified. Um, but you don't even have to be that fancy. You could throw on some old clothes, get a piece of wood, put barn paint on the side of it, And then at the end, you're going to see red marks all over you that are going to show you exactly where you got cut. 
Mm-hmm. Um, gun defense, for instance. Um, you could use simunitions if you're super hardcore. Um, or you can go to Walmart and buy a water gun. Have somebody point a water gun at you. If you get wet, you got shot. Mm. You know, there's ways to do it if that's what is important to you. Um, and it's something that, like, f- for law enforcement, for instance, every time that law enforcement encounters anyone, there's at least one gun. Mm-hmm. So if you're involved in law enforcement, you need to be comfortable if somebody gets your gun away from you. Now, if you're a you know, soccer mom, trains jujitsu twice a week as a hobby, just a workout, you enjoy it, you probably don't need to pay that much attention to gun defense. That's okay. But if you're going to go that route, there's ways that you can make it happen. I'm curious because it's rare that I get to talk to a black belt jujitsu instructor who also has some experience in law enforcement. And I'm wondering what you think of the self-defense training that You know, I don't know if you can speak to most law enforcement academies, but when law enforcement folks train self-defense, I know that a lot of them do contract with Gracie Jiu-Jitsu instructors, but, like, leaving that aside, like, what do you you think the the standard law enforcement self-defense, like, how you get taught compares to the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, Alio Gracie self-defense that that we teach in the Hoist Network and that that other folks uh, akin to the traditional Jiu-Jitsu self-defense teach? It's terrible. Um, and so the Justice Academy, and, and I can only speak for North Carolina because every st- state is different. Justice Academy establishes a minimum standard, basic law enforcement training. And any uh, – the program is called SCAT, Subject Control and Arrest Techniques. Any SCAT instructor will tell you this is baseline knowledge. You need to go out on your own. You need to find your own training. You need to go beyond this. The baseline stuff they teach you, my opinion, is no good at all because it's more designed at liability than it is at effectiveness because the state, it it's a risk for them to teach you techniques that could result in you, your department, or the state being sued. So, like, potentially lethal techniques like the rear naked choke. Right. I think that everyone in jiu-jitsu understands that a correctly applied rear naked choke by someone that knows what they're doing is actually one of the safest ways that you could end a fight. 100% agreed. Um, but the thing is, is that the, it doesn't visually appear that way. Somebody that doesn't know the technique, it, it appears very unsafe. Also, you're, you have people that, um, that they have a pre-existing blood clot. They have no idea. Nobody does. There's no way to know. And then, and this could, and, and this is something for school owners to think about as well, is that at any point, you could have somebody walk into your school that has some type of pre-existing condition that they have no knowledge of. The very first time, with no resistance, somebody applies a rear naked choke to them, blood clot dislodges, hits their brain, they die. Well, I'm not going to sleep tonight. It could happen, though. And so then when the autopsy report comes out for the police officer that it happens to, the autopsy report's going to show the choke didn't kill him. It was the blood clot. But the cell phone video is going to show the officer applying a rear naked choke and the man dying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
it's, it's a real liability issue that the state doesn't want to take on. They also ought to rethink, while they're rethinking liability, rethink the acronym SCAT, because if you don't want to convey something that is like poop. Then sure. Yeah, it's, it's not the best way. Um, but I think that they, and this is just my opinion, mm-hmm. I think that um, they, they went that way because defensive tactics, uh, I, my opinion, I think maybe they thought defensive tactics wasn't specific enough. Mm-hmm. Subject control and arrest techniques. Okay, well, we're learning how to control them and arrest them. Mm-hmm. Uh, defensive tactics could be interpreted many different ways. So you hit on this a little bit, but I'd like to hear you expand upon it. You know, there are a wide variety of people that train jujitsu for a variety of different reasons. You mentioned the soccer mom that wants to train twice a week, primarily for fitness, law enforcement folks, military folks, people that want to compete in sport jujitsu. You have a foundational curriculum, you know, the fundamentals. I'm wondering how much, if at all, when you're teaching self-defense, how much do you tailor that to the individual, to their needs and expectations? How, how much play within the rubric of these are my expectations do you have to adapt to the student's needs and how do you, how do you generally adapt to those needs? So group class and private class are different. If somebody wants to have a 100% tailored program to them, then private classes are great and that's what they need to do. In the group class, I do tailor the class to who's in who's in there in general. But if I have ten people, twenty people, whatever in class, I cannot specifically suit every single person in the class. Now, some nights I might have a plan. Oh yeah, tonight we're going to work on since we've already thrown it out, we're going to work reverse de la Hiva tonight. And then what do I have in class? I've got seven white belts that don't even know how to posture. Reverse De La Hiva is out, you know. Um, but I think that uh, I think I think that um, the basic self defense techniques for me are a foundation for everyone. And I think that what I try to allow my students to do is to get your blue belt. You do these basic techniques to show that you know them. After blue belt. It's up to you. You want to be a no-gi guy? That's fine. Come to the no-gi classes. Don't go to the gi classes. You want to expand your knowledge on self-defense. We have options for that. You want to compete. We have options for that. You want to continue to come to just the basic classes and nothing else? That's fine. Um, But I think that for me, up to Blue Belt, that first year or two of training, I try to keep it pretty much the same for everybody. And then they can personalize after. Mm. So on a different note, where does your passion for self-defense come from? Um, I think the, the jiu-jitsu community in general is, is coming from a little bit different place than it was when I started. When I started jiu-jitsu 15 years ago, um, everyone was there looking for the effectiveness in fighting. Um, almost everyone there had a prior martial arts background, something else, whether it was Hapkido or Judo, wrestling, Kung Fu, whatever it was. And we were all coming to Jiu-Jitsu looking for that effectiveness that we saw with Hoist and with other fighters in those early days of MMA. Um, I don't remember anybody in the early days coming into the school interested in tournaments. Most people were actually surprised to learn that tournaments existed and that there was such a thing as like 
jujitsu without striking was kind of surprising actually to people who came in. So for me, I grew up doing traditional martial arts, watching the UFC, and um, and that was my fascination. Was if if I wasn't interested in self defense, if I wasn't interested in actual effectiveness in combat, I would still be doing katas and breaking boards. And right now, I would probably be like an eighth degree black belt with you know an army of minions underneath me. There's still time, Jake. The yeah. army of minions is growing. Yeah, I do have an army of minions. Um, little people, we like to call them. And, uh, you know, so that was the, the whole thing um, back then was if 15 years ago when I started jiu-jitsu, I hadn't seen the UFC. And I didn't have that idea. And somebody showed me a match with... Um, the Meow Brothers against Gianni Grippo. Meow Brothers are amazing at what they do. So is Gianni. I never would have trained jiu-jitsu if that was my exposure to jiu-jitsu because it's not what we were looking for. Um, and I'm not saying that the Meow Brothers or Gianni can't defend themselves. Of course they can. They're world-class black belts. But I'm saying that the initial motivation day one to come in back then was the effectiveness in, in self-defense and in fighting. U.S. Grappling is our favorite tournament organization for a lot of reasons. Run by grapplers for grapplers, U.S. Grappling consistently provides the best tournament experience for competitors. Whether it's a points tournament or submission only, and U.S. Grappling runs true no-time-limit submission-only events, it's the best place to compete and to watch your friends compete. Check out upcoming events and register online at usgrappling.com. That makes sense to me. And, and one of the things, on another note, you know, your instructor, Hoist Gracie, who I'd like to talk about for a second, you know, changed the martial arts world and probably forever. And one of the things, like even a guy like me that started training maybe a full decade after you did, one of the reasons that I walked in was it was a Hoist Gracie school. Oh, I know that guy. That's the guy that dominated the early UFCs. And we saw how effective that was in the cage. And one of the things about jujitsu now that I think is interesting is that I th and I think there's good and bad that comes with this, is the pool upon which is drawn on for jiu-jitsu students is much broader. And so even when I started training a decade after you did, most people, I think, were in there for real-world self-defense, effective fighting techniques. I've seen that guy use that against much bigger, much stronger people under a very limited rule set or no rule set. That works. And now you, you may have folks that see like, oh, I saw this guy spin upside down. That looked really cool. And that's really fun. Or a full body workout. And I don't even necessarily think all those things are wrong, but they're, they're so th – there's much more of, I think, a diverse student pool and a diverse – like there are many, many different reasons for being there. The reasons for being there have expanded. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I would. Um, and I think that especially when you consider that – this November, it'll be 24 years since the first UFC. I have a lot of people training at my school that weren't even alive when Hoist won the first UFC. So they don't necessarily, um, the people at my school obviously do, mm -hmm. but a lot of people that are under the age of 30, 35, um, don't actually appreciate that there was a pre-UFC martial arts community. They don't appreciate how much it changed. And a lot of people, you know, that come in the door, 
really don't even know who Hoist is anymore. Um, I educate them quickly, mm-hmm. but um, but yeah, it's it's it is. There's there's a lot more reasons why people come in, and um, you know I've gotten students who came in because of Hoist. I got students who came in because they watched the UFC on TV. Now they never heard of Hoist, but they had the UFC. I've had students that come in because they saw one of Henner's videos, you know, on Facebook that got shared 10 million times or whatever it is. Um, and I have a lot of people, especially in my kids class, um, that they're interested in martial arts. They're interested in putting their child in martial arts. And then somebody recommended my school as a good martial arts school. And then they're actually surprised when they come in and were not key eyeing and punching the air. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is definitely a more diverse group now because I think that, like I said before, what happened was that jujitsu really attracted the people that were disenfranchised with a previous martial art. Whereas now I think it's very different. So we talked a little bit earlier about terminology and how that terminology matters. And so I'm just curious, when you hear the word fighter and then you hear the term martial artist, how much light do you think there is between those terms? Are they very different terms? Are they distinct? Or do they mean much the same to you? The connotation, you know, context is, is – context determines connotation. Um, if I hear um, John Jones – John Jones is an amazing fighter. He has nothing to do with martial arts. I actually think that the term mixed martial arts is um, not the best term. I think freestyle fighting would be a better term. Um, or sport fighting or you know anything. Um, when I hear the term martial arts, I really think about um, somebody that's approaching it as an art form. And... Um, and so somebody that's that their one and only interest is on winning a competition, regardless of what type of competition it is, I don't consider them a, a martial artist. Um, you know, and there are some people even competing in jiu-jitsu now that, you know, for them it's 100% completely a sport. All they care about is winning the worlds. And when I watch them, they're – undeniably effective within those rules but I don't even see them doing jiu-jitsu you know when I see like Eberth Santos competing I mean he's winning but to me it's not even identifiable as jiu-jitsu it's you know something else entirely in my opinion um and I feel the same way um just going to change subjects really quickly here about the terms fighting like street fighting and self-defense I get really annoyed with even certain people that present themselves as self-defense experts that then use the two terms interchangeably because I don't think they're interchangeable. Um, you know, a lot of people will say, I don't want to learn self-defense because I don't get in street fights. Great. Not getting in a street fight is self-defense. When I hear the term street fight, to me, it's a mutual agreed upon thing where, okay, I don't like you. You don't like me. Somebody had too much to drink. We're going to fight. That's not self-defense. Something entirely different. Um, you know, I don't – I think that um, that practicing a martial art 
is one thing. Uh, may or may not be related to self-defense. I think that practicing martial arts as an art form does not necessarily include effectiveness. Um, I think that practicing self-defense is not necessarily the same as fighting. And then fighting in martial arts, you know, it's, it's, it's like one of those diagrams with the three circles where there's an intersection where they meet, but it's three separate things. Do they meet in, in – uh, so who at that intersection of that Venn diagram, I have a couple of names that I can think of as people that I think are exemplars of, if not excellence in all three aspects, like certainly people that embody all three aspects. And I'm wondering if you have some names of some people that, that, that you would categorize as effective fighters, effective self-defense practitioners, and, and, and admirable martial artists. Uh, Dave Camarillo is the first one that comes to my mind. Um, you know, and Dave has gone beyond – um, he he's excelled at all of them, and he's a good person. Um, and um, and he's gone beyond unarmed. He's also very good with weapons, and um, he's integrated a lot of things. He's the first one that that comes to mind. Um, I think that Hickson is another one who you know Hickson was obviously an effective fighter. He obviously approaches it as an art form, and um. And that he he's also a uh, knows what he's doing with self defense, obviously. Um, and you know, there's many more, but those are like the first two that immediately pop into my head. Mm-hmm. So we've covered a lot of ground, and I'm curious: is there anything that we've left out that you think it's really important that the listeners know about self defense? Well, so I think that the process of self defense needs to be understood that the the most important thing above everything else is situational awareness because even in in boxing even in muay thai the punch that knocks you out is the punch you don't see coming so awareness is number one de-escalation is number two because if you can avoid getting into a confrontation with someone it's always better almost always better Distance management is number three, um, which goes along with the other two. You have to be aware, and you want to try to de-escalate at a distance if you can. And then um, only after the person has gotten into your space, you've been unable to de-escalate, and then they initiate a physical aggression at you, that's when the, the actual techniques themselves come into play. But the techniques are going to be more likely to fail if you didn't do the other three things correctly first. Um, and so I think that's the, it goes back to when you were asking about misconceptions. Self-defense is not about being able to escape a headlock. Being able to escape a headlock is definitely an important skill to have. But the original definition of self-defense is something that defends you, that keeps you safe. And so I think that that's the jumping off point for everything else. Exciting news from Toro BJJ. The best jiu-jitsu gi company just got better. The new Toro BJJ gi comes out in August in just a couple of weeks, designed by yours truly, and it's the best-looking gi we've ever done. You know the high-quality Toro BJJ products that you get and you see around at local tournaments. 
well, the next gi is going to blow your mind. And so we're going to advertise that both here on the program and on DirtyWhiteBelt.com. So be sure to check it out. If you want to know the story behind the gi, how the symbolism came to be, why I designed it the way I did, why I picked the colors the way I did, you can go to DirtyWhiteBelt.com slash blog and hear the whole story. I always like getting products that have a story behind it, especially when I can get them from a local company that supports local athletes and Toro BJJ does just that. Check them out at ToroBJJ.com or at Cageside Fight Shop in Durham at 124 Lotter Road. So that's our show for the week. I want to thank Jake Whitfield for stopping by and sharing some of his time. And I want to encourage everyone who listens to this to think a little bit deeper about self-defense. You know, Matt Thornton and some of the other people that we talked about during the interview have a similar perspective to Jake, where anything that really keeps you safe is self-defense. And really, isn't that the whole reason we're all doing this? This has been another episode of Dirty White Belt Radio. My name is Jeff Shaw. The co-hosts are Betsy O'Donovan and Lourdes Cantu. Our Patreon supporters are Betty Broadhurst, Cody Malte, Chris Holmes, and Carl Krebs. You can join them and help to support the show for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash dirtywhitebelt. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dirtywhitebelt. You get access to all kinds of cool rewards, get to see new stuff before anybody else does, and generally speaking, can feel good about yourself for helping your friendly neighborhood local jujitsu show. My name is Jeff Shaw. This is Dirty White Belt Radio, and we will see you all next Sunday.